Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Rebecca Koenig, a reporter for EdSurge. It's election season in the U.S., and get-out-the-vote efforts are in full swing. And one question being asked by pundits and politicos is, how do we motivate young voters to show up at the polls? After all, in the most recent presidential election, less than half of citizens ages 18 to 29 participated, compared to 71% of those 65 and older, and 67% of eligible voters ages 45 to 64. But a book published earlier this year by two political scientists tweaks that question. Young people are already plenty motivated to vote, the authors say, but they don't always follow through to cast ballots. So this book asks, what is it that prevents young people from actually voting? The answer has implications for political campaigns, policymakers, and, of course, for educators. The book, called Making Young Voters, offers a surprising insight about what kind of education actually influences youth voting behavior. And it's not necessarily civics class. Making Young Voters was written by Sunshine Hillegas, a professor of political science at Duke University, and John Holbein, assistant professor of public policy and education at the University of Virginia. To learn more, I spoke with Hillegas, who recently gave a speech about young voters for the National Academy of Sciences. What piqued your interest in studying and writing about young voters? Um, the North Carolina State Legislature um, passed a incredibly restrictive um, piece of legislation that um, instituted voter ID and got rid of um, pre-registration. Well, pre-registration is when young people as young as 16 are able to fill out their registration form so that once they come of age, they don't have that additional hurdle um, to go through uh, to, to be able to vote. Um, there were a lot of debates on both sides of the aisle um, about assumptions made that pre-registration was going to to have an impact one way um, or the other. And uh, pre-registration had some, been some uh, a law that had been passed with large bipartisan majorities just a few years before and um, was, was now um, being repealed with, with this piece of legislation. And we realized in, in all of these public debates that nobody had actually assessed whether or not in fact, pre-registration had any impact on young people. And so John and I set out to try and test that. We um, ended up um, conducting an analysis that was, um, I think, John's first publication, um, and in which we found that pre-registration um, was quite effective at increasing um, youth turnout in subsequent election cycles. And uh, more than that, that... Um, that it wasn't something that uh, necessarily, you know, benefited one side or the other, that, that predominantly the group of um, young people who were more likely to, to use pre-registration and ultimately um, vote um, tended to be those who were unaffiliated. And, and so, you know, all of these debates about, you know, whether pre-registration and repealing it were going to hurt Democrats or Republicans you know, what, what we wanted to really make the point about is, is number one, is that it is effective and, and that you, you can't make assumptions about, you know, which side was necessarily going to um, benefit. 
Um, we also found in our analysis that it was um, especially effective when it was coupled with um, efforts within high schools um, to demonstrate voting, to have a, a, a registration drive. So th this project where we were, you know, just driven by this, you know, event um, within politics prompted the publication and then our involvement in a federal lawsuit that ultimately was successful in, in um, bringing pre-registration back to the state of North Carolina. And, and really it, it prompted this um, interest in, you know, if, if it was more effective um, when, you know, it was coupled with things going on in the schools, like maybe there are some policies that, that, um, we should, you know, look at more closely to see what could actually improve youth turnout. And, and so that started our focus on young voters and trying to understand, um, you know, why they vote at so such low levels and, and mm -hmm. what were some possible policy solutions to that. Uh, it's so interesting to hear about the process of this, that it, it kind of started in politics, went through research, and then ended up affecting policy. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, that's exactly what um, academic research can do, right, mm -hmm. is, is, is actually be relevant. What are the traditional theories or stories about why young people do or don't vote? And how does that compare with what you found? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's oftentimes this assumption that the, the only thing that we need to do to increase youth turnout is to get young people more interested in politics and more motivated. And there's a variety of different explanations for why um, it's, it's often assumed that young people are not motivated. Sometimes it's thought that it's because, um, you know, the politicians that are running tend to be really old and focusing on issues that are less relevant to um, young people. And it certainly is the case that, that, you know, there's a greater focus on things like social security, <laughs> you know, in, in our um, public policy making than on things like, um, education, in part because of the composition of the electorate. Mm. Uh, other people um, say that um, the nature of politics today has has just turned um, off young people. That you know it's so polarized and um, seems so dirty. That you know who would want to get involved in in politics now? And and certainly we do find that, for instance, in civic education courses, that that teachers are quite reluctant to talk about politics for fear of how parents will react if they're talking about current policy issues. But the, the key premise that we uh, challenge is that young people are not motivated and that that's what needs to change in order to increase youth turnout. We find that young people are incredibly interested. They're incredibly um, motivated to participate in politics. They care about who um, is, is elected. Um, and in fact, the vast majority of them, when asked before an election, they say they plan to vote. Um, and what we discover is that they don't follow through on that. And so, um, and that's where there is this massive ga gap and difference between young people and older people is that, that um, young people are far less likely to follow through on their intentions to participate.
And what prevents them? What prevents them from following through or what enables them to follow through? You know, what we find is, is that, um, you know, there are both internal and external barriers to participation that impact young people more. And so um, the the key thing that we want to focus on is that if you want to think about the, the, the policy solutions to increasing youth turnout, you know, you can't just, um, you know, get a bunch of celebrities to say that voting is cool and that, you know, you should care about politics. Young people care about politics, right? It's, instead, we need to identify those barriers that are keeping young people from following through on those intentions. And that's where registration laws um, and um, vote laws and voter ID and a variety of different institutional barriers um, end up having um, an impact on young people. There's also kind of stage in life um, barriers that, that we also talk about. And, and that is, is that, you know, young people are more likely to be distracted from their intentions. Um, and so, you know, you think about the fact that um, for, you know, most 40 year olds, you kind of have like a, a stable work week where you kind of know <laughs> when you'll fit voting in on that first two Tuesday um, in November, whereas young people have a far more fluid and um, unstable, um, you know, schedule and lifestyle that means that um, intentions to do a lot of things sometimes, um, uh, you know, are, are harder to, to follow through on. So, right. so, you know, it's, it's not all just the, you know, election reforms that are needed. It's partly, you know, also, you know, that so, so even with, making um, voting and registration much, much easier. You know, it, it won't entirely solve the problem. But what we do find is, is that there are a number of election reforms that, that do disproportionately affect young people and, and, can, and making it easier to participate will um, help to, to increase um, youth turnout. To the point you just made that it's not just policy um, that can serve as a barrier or a facilitator. The book takes an interdisciplinary approach to studying voter behavior. And I'm curious what fields other than political science can tell us about young voters. Sure. I mean, we, we most directly engage education and psychology. So the, one of the things that we show is that the young people who are kind of best um, able to overcome any barriers, th- those who are most likely to follow through on their intentions to vote are those who have um, stronger, what are called non-cognitive skills. Um, non-cognitive skills are, are the self-regulation and motivational um, um, factors that, that can affect our ability to achieve our goals in any setting, political or non-political. So the same thing that, you know, when you say that you're going to, to exercise, when you say that you're going to study for a test, when, you know, any of the things that um, um, we think about in terms of, of achievements, that there's a set of, of non-cognitive or social-emotional skills that help people to follow through um, on on their goals, and those um, those same set of skills matter for um, civic participation as well. So this has been a, a big debate within the education policy world. Like, how much should we be focusing on 
kind of, you know, math and reading and um, how much should we focus on these social emotional skills. And, and so we uh, bring to bear, you know, re- experiments and surveys and, you know, you name and qualitative interviews um, to look at um, whether there would be kind of civic payoffs um, for investment in the development of, the, of these um, non-cognitive skills. And, and so, for instance, we um, report on the results of this um, very intensive experiment um, where nobody was thinking about politics at the time. They were all just thinking about, can we take underprivileged children um, help them to develop these set of, of non-cognitive skills to help with things like high school graduation and attendance in college and, and so on. And um, what that study found is, is that with, you know, all of this investment in um, teaching um, self-regulation and, and, and so on, that there were payoffs in, in terms of things like um, high school graduation. We then uh, matched those same individuals to voter files and found that there were also payoffs in terms of civic participation. Wow. So that, that those um, underprivileged children who were randomized to receive, um, you know, uh, skill development um, were also more likely um, 10, 15 years down the line to, um, to vote. And and so it, this is this is kind of calling attention to the fact that like where the civic education policy or where the education policy folks are kind of debating like oh this can have impacts on um, graduation rates and college attendance and we're like well not just that right <laughs> that, that right. actually it it can have impacts in in terms of of um, the civic domain um, as well. That's so interesting. In addition to that, what lessons does your research offer for educators hoping to encourage teenagers and young adults to participate civically and to vote? Yeah, and actually this is, you know, part of the research that I think um, beyond kind of the, you know, what are the electoral reforms that we can do, that this is really one of the key lessons. And that is our civic education um, curriculum right now is really broken. Um, so we show that um, that civics education is having a, a, a small impact on on the political knowledge of of young people, but absolutely zero impact on whether they actually participate. Wow! And so we um, we really, you know, we are certainly not the first to criticize. Um, civic education <laughs> these days. I mean, there's a lot of people who kind of emphasize the fact that like we used to to spend a lot more kind of school time on civic education. And so we've seen not only a decline in civic education, but also, right, this what we call bubble sheet civics, where it's really focused on memori- memorizing facts and about history and reading legal cases. And it's very disconnected, not only from politics today, um, but from the actual processes of, of, of voting. And so um, one of the, the key kind of takeaway lessons is, is not just that we need more civics, um, but rather we need a different type of civics. And in, in fact, there's several ways that I think that actually we're doing some harm by teaching civics um, that is both disconnected from politics, but also fails to teach the right type of 
um, political knowledge. Mm. So one of the big internal barriers that we identify is that young people more than old people hold themselves to an information standard um, about the election <laughs> that is much, much higher than what older people do. So, huh. so young people, we find that they frequently say, well, I plan to vote, but I ended up not doing as much research as I thought I should about the issues and the candidates. And so I didn't feel well informed enough to vote. Old people, like they vote regardless, right? Like they, yeah. they, they know that they're able to muddle through and represent their interests through using heuristics of party and, and so on that, that young people, and, and this might well be a reflection both of the way we teach civics, but also of this kind of hyper information environment in which people know that they could spend all of this time doing research <laughs> about right. the issues and candidates. And they, I think young people kind of assume that other people are doing that. Um, and so they don't want to, you know, vote using party. They don't, they don't want to be a voter who's not well informed. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is both teach about the basic mechanics of what it takes to register and to vote, and also really emphasize the point that it's about participation. It's not about who you vote for. It's not about the information basis of that vote, that, that what, you know, democracy is sustained by people showing up. Um, and, and uh, unfortunately we're oftentimes not even teaching the basics of how you show up, like things like, you know, be sure that you sign your registration form. What do you do if you show up at the polling location and they don't have your name, um, uh, you know, on the, the registration roll, um, that, that the mechanics of the, the voting process is something that over and over over again, we, we kept hearing young people say, like, I'm really embarrassed to admit that right. I didn't know exactly what to do to request an absentee ballot. And I had to ask my dad, right? Well, that's great if you grow up in a family where you can ask, you know, ask your parents. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're missing out on or, you know, what civic education should be doing is helping to equalize participation, even for those who don't come from, from politically active families. And, and right now we're really failing to do that. And, and again, it's, it's oftentimes about the mechanics. It's not memorizing, you know, who's the chief justice of the Supreme court. It is, you have to register to vote 30 days in advance if you live in the state. Right. right? And, 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 you know, one, one of my very favorite um, quotes from the qualitative interviews that we did is a young woman was like, you know, it's really a mindset shift. Um, I'm used to being able to go on Amazon and getting the things that I need the next day. And with politics, you can't do that, right? Like to vote, you have to register, you know, 30 days in advance. And that's, that's, in the, you know, and she's like, and I didn't get around to, to mm -hmm. registering. And so, you know, it really is a bit of a mindset shift, um, and, and it, it becomes, um, you know, for those of us who have voted in many elections and we still live in the same place as, you know, where we voted last time, that, that it can, it can be difficult to, to, to understand why it, it, you know, voting is not super easy. Right. Um, but, and, and, and unfortunately part of what has happened is we have, um, kind of, um, made people embarrassed to admit that they don't 
that, that they have questions about mm. process. And I mean, that's especially the case. I mean, in the pandemic, I mean, consider the fact that like, if you look up what the residency rules are across states, they vary and they're murky and they're complicated. And we had young people telling us that like, I plan to vote, but then I, I didn't want to like break the rules and I'm not sure if I was supposed to, right? Like if right. I was supposed to vote. And, and I think that, again, that lack of confidence about the voting process, that's not the fault of young people. Um, and, and it is, but it is creating a barrier to participation. It's interesting to hear what sounds a little bit like young people having a very high level of conscientiousness about not wanting to vote without doing the research, not wanting to break the rules and how I feel like in much of school and much of young people's lives, that would probably be seen as a positive um, sort of attention to detail and, and high standard. Uh, And yet, as you mentioned, it, it, it prevents people from, showing up if they don't feel they they're qualified enough to do it. Right. And I, I think that's one of the things that we could do a better job in civics of emphasizing is that, that we can, we can do a good job muddling through, right? Most people are able to kind of look and see like, do I agree or disagree with the, you know, the, the current um, president and that's going to give me a pretty good indication of should I vote D or R? And, mm-hmm. and, and we have a system in which you don't have to know about every single issue. You don't have to know about every single candidate, you know, like these city council races and dog catcher races, right? Like we, we are asked an unrealistic level of, of participation in some sense. And, and so, um, it, you know, I, I think that there was a message that, that, that others and I think also with experience, you realize is like you show up and and you vote and and there will be times when you don't necessarily know who the candidates are, um, but but that shouldn't prevent you from from showing up and and you can you can muddle through. Mm-hmm. Does your research reveal any efforts to suppress young people's voting power? You know whether it's it's labeled that or not, um, and have those efforts been successful? Of course. Yeah. I mean, that, the, the very, um, you know, a law that, that prompted this um, research project in the first place in which they, there was a repeal of pre-registration. There was really no other justification. In fact, the federal courts, you know, ruled. And in fact, that was the, the motivation was to um, suppress young people. Um, it's often the case that when we look at um, where polling locations are on college campuses, um, that it becomes very obvious because a lot of college campuses are deliberately split up across different precincts. Um, oh. And and so, yes, there are, there are lots and lots of examples of ways in which those in power um, if they do not um, anticipate that young people <laughs> will uh, vote in ways that they want, have have attempted to um, suppress their participation. To what extent do young people share specific political beliefs or party affiliations, both historically and 
young people today? Because it sounds like some efforts at young people's at suppressing young people's votes might be based on assumptions that they're all going to vote one way. And it sounds like maybe that is not necessarily the case. I think it's one of the biggest um, problems that we face in, in terms of communicating about um, young people and, and policy changes. And, and that is, is that it is often assumed that you increase youth turnout and this will inevitably help the Democrats. And it's a very inaccurate and short-sighted um, perspective. And, and, and the reason is why is like, yes, that you could say at this moment, um, in this election, that it is likely the case that that young people are are you know going to be more likely to to vote for Biden, but young people are far less kind of loyal and committed to one party or the other, and so um, you know that we are going. It is very common for um, election reforms that are thought to benefit one side or the other. Um, don't end up playing out in that way. So whether we're talking about pre-registration or um, um, being able to register at the DMV, like there's just many evidence, there's many um, studies from political science that show that you just shouldn't assume because once you kind of expand the pool of voters, that you're expanding the pool of voters to a group of voters who are often less predictable and mm. they're less predictable not only in the given election cycle but more importantly over the course of of subsequent um election cycles and and so i think that the case of pre-registration is one of those what what we found is that um in the state of florida for instance that although more um young people um registered as as democrats um, using pre-registration than as Republicans, that those who pre-registered as Republican were actually more likely to vote. Okay. Um, in the state of North Carolina, um, it was the unaffiliated who were um, more likely to use pre-registration. And, and so it increased the pool of people who were unaffiliated in the electorate. So, so again, I just think that we have to be careful about making assumptions, um, in part because um, young people in some ways are far more um, responsive to, you know, current government performance um, than kind of um, old people who have been loyal to one side or the other for, for a long time. Mm. Does the lack of loyalty or even ambivalence about party among young people suggest anything about how this current batch of young folks will vote in the future? you know, it, does it predict a decrease in party loyalty for the next 50 or 100 years? Or is that more related to, to being young? And when these people get older, they will act more like the older people that came before them? This is, you know, a classic uh, question <laughs> in the field um, and, and one that can be a little bit difficult to sort out. So it, it turns out that it's a little bit of both. On the okay. one hand, there are these life cycle effects where, you know, as people, be as it becomes, you know, that they go several elections in a row of voting a particular way, that, that they become more loyal towards one side or the other and, and that that kind of shapes then their likelihood of, of 
um, becoming you know loyal. There's also um, what are called period effects. So like you know pe- people who came of age and were really influenced by 9/11 or by Vietnam or um, the civil rights movement, like that that there are these effects that are sticky, right? That that when you came of age and 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 something has this profound effect on your memory, that it shapes your political values and mm-hmm. beliefs in ways that that can be sticky. So there's a little bit of both, right? That, that, that we expect some evolution, but we also expect that, um, that there is some stickiness and, and, um, and, and then at the end of the day that like how you grew up, um, you know, in, in terms of your household, um, your socioeconomic status, your um, religious affiliation, the political activity of, of your parents, that those things are all um, super important as well. I mean, which always, it, it, it always um, kind of makes me um, giggle when people talk about like, oh, you come to college and um, college professors indoctrinate you to believe one way or the other. I'm like, we can't even get um, college students to read our syllabus. <laughs> we're not doing a lot of indoctrination. And um, not only that, but like where people come from matters um, a lot as well. Okay. Have you uncovered different behavior or different access to voting opportunities among young people depending on socioeconomic status or race or gender? Are there any kind of trends that are worth exploring? All of the um, gaps that we see among voters broadly show up among young people as well. So okay. that means that these disparities that we see in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of gender and so on, that they all already exist um, in that very first election cycle. So um, women are more likely to participate than men. Um, the non-whites are less likely to participate um, than whites with the exception of, of black women. Um, and so, so anyway, so there, there, those patterns um, are already there. An election is uh, on its way, of course. What lessons does your research offer for political campaigns trying to secure votes from young people? Or, as we've discussed, does it start way before its its campaign season, more with laws and education than actual messaging and outreach strategy? So number one is I would say that it starts way before. On the other hand, I think there are lessons to be taken away in terms of mobilization efforts. So, you know, rather than the kind of rock the vote, we need to get um, voting to be cool by, you know, getting various celebrities to say that you should care about politics, that we might be better off by sending calendar reminders or Mm. distributing pizza if there's a long line (laughs) at the, you know, the polling location. That when we think about the key obstacle not being about political interest or about political motivation, but rather about follow through, that it does change, um, I think, how you um, try and, and and mobilize someone. And, and it, it again, um, gives a lot of attention to um, the role of registration um, and um, the vast differences across states in what it takes and when you can register and, and what the rules are. Um, you know, one of the, the concerns I have in the pandemic is, is just that there 
um, are a, a variety of different groups giving different information. Um, and that information about, you know, should you vote in your college town or your parents' town um, aren't, is not always consistent. And, and I think that it can add to the confusion about, um, you know, what a young people, what a young person needs to do in order to um, register and vote. I, I do think that an important lesson here is that, um, you know, there's, there's always cyclical attention to young voters. And the reality is, is the hard work of doing what we actually need to do in order to increase youth turnout happens between election cycles, right? It happens by making our registration laws um, easier to, um, to, to get people registered. It, it happens by, um, you know, changing the way that we teach um, about voting in the schools. Uh, and so those are all things I, I've often, um, uh, you know, looked at, at, um, you know, what the schools are doing around registration and voting and, and recognize that, you know, there's a lot of attention to it oftentimes in an election cycle. But I've always thought they should do the registration drive like the day after the election. Right. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> then, then you'll capture all those people that like, you know, are, are, are like, dang it, I should have I should have been registered. Um, but but the reality is, is that that one of the, the key things that we really emphasize is, is the need for the school systems to, to take a prominent role in making um, young voters. And, and that means um, um, having in-class um, voter registration, voting demonstrations, uh, discussions of um, what it takes to register and to vote in terms of the actual process and the mechanics. Um, and um, that that is a hard thing given the current incentives of, of um, the education system. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how higher education is changing, sign up for EdSurge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. This episode was edited by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with the next episode of our fall series, Pandemic Campus Diaries, taking you inside college life and the unique challenges students and professors are facing. Thanks for listening.